0: seek to get at privacy through antitrust, you're basically putting the people in charge of antitrust, the judges or the law enforcers like me, in a situation where they have to make decisions between two opposing goods. And they say, he who serves two masters serves none. So this is interesting because the FTC does serve two masters, right?
1: You you are an antitrust authority and you are the closest thing to a privacy authority that we have at the federal level. Uh, So you see... to Episode 303 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, this is a bonus episode in which we're going to be interviewing Noah Phillips, who's a commissioner on the Federal Trade Commissioner, uh, who recently gave a speech entitled, Should We Block This Merger? And the merger he's uh, talking about blocking is the idea that uh, antitrust and privacy are converging. Uh, he gave that speech at the Stanford Center for Internet and Society. I thought it was interesting enough, we ought to spend a little time talking about it. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and the DHS, host of today's program, and uh, I um, should repeat the usual disclaimer. Uh, The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions of um, our institutions, neither the FTC nor Steptoe & Johnson, uh, nor Steptoe's clients, nor uh, um, uh, Stuart Baker's uh, family, wife, uh, uh, or children, uh, as they remind me regularly. Uh, But I want to jump in. It's an interesting idea and it's been kicking around that there's a connection and the connection is
0: big tech. Uh, uh, But how come you decided to give this talk? So Stuart, uh, first of all, let me open by thanking you for having me. It's great to be back here. It's good to see you. Uh, It's good to see you and it's good to be back here on the uh, cyber law podcast. The reason I gave the speech is that while the idea is not brand new. It's been kicking around for a few years. It's gotten a lot more attention recently. There was a conference that was held uh, last year, uh, where a bunch of pretty important people in Europe, uh, both at the nation state level and at the European Commission level, were really pushing this idea. It's also gotten a little bit of play here in America. And I'm concerned because I think it's a pretty bad idea, and so that's why I wanted to give this speech. Well, ipso facto, if it's coming from Europe, it's a bad idea, and it deals with with the
1: Silicon Valley. They, they have nothing but bad ideas, and are increasingly convinced of them all. But I, uh, so I, uh, and yet there is this sort of notion that uh, look. uh, Silicon Valley has gotten so big and they have so much of our data uh, and they use it in ways we don't anticipate and it helps reinforce their hold on markets for advertising, for uh, social networking, that maybe the solution ought to be to look at their bigness and the data that helps support it uh, in a
0: converged way. I think that's the best argument for doing this, right? Sure. Uh, And what I hear you saying uh, is two things, and I don't think that's about converging the doctrines. If you are looking at competition questions in Silicon Valley, especially with some of the large data-driven firms, of course, data is going to be something about which you're thinking. Um, And antitrust has long been able to look at the question of how does data operate in this market? Does it function as a barrier to entry? Do limitations on sharing of data have a competitive impact? Does compulsory sharing of data have some sort of competitive impact at which we ought to look? That's all fair, and that's all well within the bounds of antitrust law. But that is something... But none of that is particularly good for privacy as most people understand it. Well, that's a very important point, and that's one of the things I wanted to draw out in the speech, and one of the reasons I thought this is a bad idea... There are times when competition may be able to support privacy. If it's something that people really value, the market may reflect that. But there are also times when the two ideas, the two goals of competition and privacy may be at loggerheads. If you, for instance, are not comfortable with Facebook sharing a lot of its data with third parties, other market players, um, as many people are, or you know, through APIs and, and, and so forth, uh That may be a privacy concern that you have, but cutting off access to that data, which may be very valuable to those third parties, which is part of the reason they're interested in it, or all the reason they're interested in it, may be good for competition. So there are a number of ways in which the two goals of competition and privacy um, can be, at least under certain circumstances at loggerheads. And the problem that that creates is if you seek to get at privacy, other than in one way that I'll talk about in a minute, through antitrust- You're basically putting the people in charge of antitrust, the judges or the law enforcers like me, in a situation where they have to make decisions between two opposing goods. And they say, he who serves two masters serves none. So this is interesting because the FTC does serve two masters, right? You
1: you are an antitrust authority and you are the closest thing to a privacy authority that we have at the federal level. Uh, So you see this
0: every day. Yes. But the critical point that I'm trying to make is when we're doing one thing, we're doing one thing. And when we're doing the other, we're doing the other. And it's important to keep that in mind. Now, if we're fashioning a remedy um, in a case, let's say in a privacy case, should we think broadly speaking about the competitive impact? Maybe. If we're thinking about the application of a rule, as all agencies that do regulation think about the application of the rule, should we think about how it impacts competition? Of course. But that is a different thing entirely than say looking at a merger which may or may not on its own implicate privacy and saying privacy is a goal we want to achieve through fashioning a remedy to this merger or bringing a case to block it and so, so my forth. first thought would be
1: you should always think about the competitive impact of how you resolve a privacy case, because you're doing that under very broad authorities to uh, um, undo, uh, you know, misrepresentation to uh, and unfair practices. It's all very mushy standards, uh, and so of course you you shouldn't adopt something under that sort of mushy standard that is going to be bad for competition. I think it's. Harder to make the argument that when you're fashioning an antitrust remedy, you ought to give special concern to the privacy implications of that, uh, in the sense of saying, why don't we toss in a few privacy remedies while we're at it? Here,
0: yeah, and certainly the latter is something you absolutely want to avoid. One of the examples I give in the speech is if we were considering the merger of ExxonMobil and Shell, right, two very large oil companies. Would we consider privacy? Well, they all have – they have plenty of personal data on all So they do, and that's fair. But it's not something that jumps to the top of the mind. And Mm -hmm. there are any number of aspects of competition that we would look in general. What is the impact on not just output and price but innovation and maybe even under certain limited circumstances, privacy? But what I fear, and part of what I think is coming out of some of these conversations in Europe and elsewhere, is that we're not talking about privacy and antitrust as opposed to any other thing and antitrust without a sense of who the targets are in mind. And what I don't want us to do is develop rules with targets in mind. We ought to have neutral rules, and those can be rules with respect to privacy and rules with respect to antitrust. This would be a Big
1: surprise to uh, Brussels, which has been designing its rules for tech for
0: 15 years on the assumption that they're just going to hurt Americans. And we're seeing new rules every week. Yeah. Right? The von der Leyen Commission has got a boatload of new ambitions and I'm hearing gripes about GDPR and we're just two years in.
1: Yeah, not no, even. It, it, it's I uh, so uh, from their point of view, it's it's uh, consequence free regulation. I, nothing bad will happen to them that will blow back on them. Nobody is going to call up and say, "My company went out of business because of these things you did today here in Czechoslovakia, because uh, Czech Republic." Because they. They don't usually enforce them and the people who are subject to them are much smaller in Europe than uh, in the United States. So they can experiment with this and see how bad it is when Facebook does it and then uh, decide, well, maybe that was too much later
0: and uh, the the consequences in
1: Silicon Valley – Uh, are no concern of theirs.
0: Yeah, although I do think part of the consequences they're seeing in Europe is what's driving some of the new reforms. One thing we heard from Commissioner Vesteyer, you know, not two weeks ago, was how Europe really ought to be the place where they can do industrial data sharing and where they can develop AI and compete with the US and compete with China because they've got all this great data and they want to innovate around it. They want to innovate around the sharing of the data. And I sort of sit there and look... Your whole thing has been pushing back on the sharing of data. And you might develop a technology with consumer data in mind that is applicable in the industrial world. Well, and that's how innovation works. I'm willing
1: to bet that uh, when you look. Deeply at the industrial data, that it's going to have some PII in there somewhere, right? Somebody is driving that car. Somebody is using that machine. Somebody is out uh, uh, running that uh, fishing vessel. Uh, uh, And uh, all the data you have about how that machine is operating and the vessel, where the
0: vessel's going, is PII at some level. You've triggered me, Stuart, because whenever I hear people talk about industrial data and they mention cars, it shocks me. That clearly implicates so many of the individual privacy issues that people talk about, right? Location is a big deal. What is it we think cars are collecting? Oh, but now you're getting in the way of the success of the German auto industry,
1: and that Brussels will never do. I support success in all (laughs) auto industries. (laughs) Uh, So I, I think this makes sense. What about the argument that we ought to look at consumer benefit or consumer harm. And uh, when the product is free, you can't look at the price. So if, if there's harm, it's someplace else. And since what the companies are gathering is dat- personal data, and they're using it uh, in a variety of ways, some of which could be quite uh, harmful to consumers, like deciding, oh, it's Saturday night. He's probably drunk. He won't care what the price is. We can charge him more. Uh, it, it, Or just, I can serve him ads and he's more likely to respond to them. Uh, All of that is what they are extracting from from consumers. And if they misuse the data in a way that harms privacy, it is the the harm that they have extracted as part of their dominance of the
0: industry. So – one of the things that I say repeatedly in this speech, and I'll make the point here just to make sure I'm clear, it isn't that privacy is altogether irrelevant from antitrust law. Like any aspect of quality, if we have evidence that this is a basis on which firms are competing in the market, um, then fine, that's something at which we can look. But the difficulty that privacy presents um, is that that isn't always so. And even where it is so, because people have really different tastes for privacy, the mechanisms for measuring it, the ability to look at it and really understand what's going on is going to be a lot more difficult. James Cooper's got an interesting article where he likens this to looking at the competitive impact of a restaurant's decision to move off of beans and go to – it wasn't pasta, but something else. And the point being, a lot of this is taste. If I push you an ad while you walk by the Starbucks, you might experience that as super convenient. Great, I got the ad. I got I a coupon right when I needed it. But another per- to another person, that's really creepy, and that just complicates the analysis. It isn't like price, right? We all want lower prices, right? And and indeed, for an individual consumer, the
1: the, the decision whether it's a uh, cool or creepy might vary uh, by time of day or how much they've had to drink, uh, or uh, uh, over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the first time it happens, it's creepy. The third time it happens, you say, "Well, I'm going to use this coupon." So, I, I it's very it, it is very hard to um, determine. Plus, I think if you ask consumers, you know, sitting in a room like this studio, uh, uh, how they value privacy, they'll value it very highly. But if you watch their behavior in the marketplace, they may value it much less. Uh, and you know, the uh, the nice thing about most antitrust analysis is it really is focused on the marketplace. Uh, but from the point of view of privacy
0: enthusiasts, that's not where they really want privacy measured. Yeah. Look, this is what they call the privacy paradox. And I think it's something we're stuck with. And I think the nuance you made, uh, you noted a moment ago, which is that we also may be seeing shifting consumer tastes, right? People may have different appetite for one thing. Um, as markets develop and as their experiences of consumers develop it and again, privacy not irrelevant necessarily uh, but a complicated a complicated thing to introduce. I'll add one thing in terms of some of the platforms uh, and that is that you know sometimes people talk about well it isn't free you're trading your data and that's sort of true s- sort of true what's also true is that someone else is paying for this right there are ads that are running and those are the people that are experiencing price effects and any story I think about these markets that only focuses on one side of a two-sided market misses a whole oh, whole absolutely so and and uh, what's been interesting is there's a lot
1: of sophisticated discussion of the Personal data side of this business, and remarkably little public data about uh, developments in the ad market, which is you know dominated by two or three companies, two companies really, and and it's not completely without competition. My sense is, uh, you know, Amazon, for example, is is coming up in that world. Verizon has not quite established itself, although one or the other of them is probably number two, um, number three, but. They they are very dominant. You know, if if you're looking at mobile, uh, uh, I'm sure Facebook has an enormous piece of ad pie, and it's probably gotten bigger since GDPR. And the same for Google and uh, uh, search ads uh, or uh, 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 static ads. How much? Uh, let me take you back to the discussion we had briefly earlier. The solution for consolidation in that market almost certainly is going to be having to share the personal data that makes the ads valuable with more companies because that's the it's the raw material of uh, uh, on which people are competing. And if one party has it all, they're always going to have
0: a, uh, a dominant share of the market. Whenever I hear someone make the claim that, you know uh, – We will pass this privacy law to accomplish a competition goal, to get more competition. I want to tear what little hair I have left out of my head. Oh, you've got a ways to go still. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm making progress. Um, The regulatory schemes impose barriers to entry. And- that's what the data seem to show already coming out of Europe following GDPR. And this is the second speech I gave as an FTC commissioner was, hey, Congress, when you're thinking about what kind of privacy regime we ought to have, please keep competition in mind. Because if one of your concerns is the role that some of the larger tech companies that are data, personal data-driven play, a massive regulatory scheme that they can easily deal with but other smaller firms can't, raises a lot of issues.
1: So you're very persuasive on this uh, uh, to American ears. Um, Let's suppose you're not persuasive to Europe. What remedies does the United United States antitrust uh, uh, experts and enforcers have if uh, Europe goes off
0: on some completely whacked antitrust theory? I mean, I don't know that we have remedies, uh, legal remedies. Uh, against... You can job on them, you know, and, and, and I, there are at least three people in Europe who will listen to this. <laughs> um, no, we spend a lot of time working with our international partners in Europe and elsewhere. Um, there's a lot of communication that goes back and forth. You know, I think part of what we offer, what I hope we offer is an ability to say, hey, look at what's good in the American economy. That's not unrelated to the domestic economic policies that we have. Is that argument always persuasive? No. Another argument is to take a look, and there are interesting studies that people are doing of what's happening in Europe, uh, Liad Wagman and others, um, and that they should see the impact. And in fact, you hear some of this in the rhetoric, although you also hear in the rhetoric, gosh, we're not doing enough with privacy enforcement or the system isn't working. You know, I,
1: I had Brad Smith on here, president of Microsoft, and uh, when I asked him what how, what happened, I remember the Microsoft that was uh, red in tooth and claw and uh, f- feared uh, uh, everywhere. Uh, and now it's the cuddliest of the – Big trillion dollar companies, companies. Uh, and uh, people are not mad at it and yet they're making a lot of money. I said, how did you transform the company? He said it was the antitrust case, uh, which makes sense. Antitrust, unlike privacy, even with $5 billion fines, antitrust is a knife to the neck of a company. They, they could be broken up. They they're, All their plans uh, could be totally disrupted and it's a sense – of just how much everybody hates you uh, uh, when you you say this is the end of uh, our company and, and people applaud. Um, so I think one of the things that's going on here is the people who are angry about privacy or who have focused on privacy as the reason for their anger um, want a bigger cudgel than they have had up to now. And antitrust looks like it. Uh, uh, and I think it, it probably is. So that may be part of the reason for this
0: uh, eagerness to merge the two fields. I think that's certainly plausible. I, uh, You mentioned the $5 billion fine of Facebook. After we issued the fine, I wrote in the Wall Street Journal, and I kind of opened my op-ed with – for a lot of people, this case is about a lot of different things, right? For some people, it's about politics. For some people, it's about generally the data practices of Facebook. And what I said in that piece was, in terms of the law, it's about the violation of the order that govern Facebook. When you have a situation where any company – is very unpopular and people are mad about it for a variety of things. Absolutely. I think a lot of them look for tools. Um, There is some rhetoric, you even heard this in the campaign, where people talk about antitrust as protecting democracy, right? I don't know what that means. And I certainly can't imagine what kind of rule of law you would have if a bunch of federal bureaucrats like me thought it was our job to use the tools we had to, quote, protect democracy. Now, it may be that having competition is good for democracy. That's great, but asking me, I think you're too power, you're too powerful, or the other guy is too powerful. That is a recipe for disaster. Okay, so you then I I
1: think I, last week uh, Daphne Keller and I went off on um, Silicon Valley censorship of speech and shaping of what Americans can say to each other and can't say to each other, uh, a an authority that. It uh, leaves me cold, uh, indeed uh, chilled, um, in more than any ways than one. And if I had the an answer that I thought was most plausible, it would be more competition. Uh, if there were five Twitters, at least one of them would be the fox of Twitter. Uh, if there were five Facebooks, one of them would be the fox of Facebook. That may or may not be possible. Uh, but... My question is, is it legitimate to say, again, it's a free service, uh, uh, but maybe they're taking their uh, monopoly profits in uh, virtue signaling and uh, the satisfaction of uh, shutting down people with whom they disagree? Uh, And is that a legitimate antitrust consideration? Uh, And should it drive serious antitrust remedies? So let me say
0: two things. Uh, First... You use the analogy of Fox, right? So Uh there was a time when we didn't have a network news that represented the views of a lot of Americans. Um, And now we've got a wider variety, right? Media bias was a famously studied and very extensively studied phenomenon. I remember reading books about it in college. But at least with respect to some of the social media companies, I do think the environment is a little bit different from a network, where they're making editorial choice with respect to, and exercising editorial choice with respect to all of the content, Um, what you see on a Twitter or a Facebook is lots of different people talking to each other. So there's a lot of different voices. It isn't like we see in network news. Right. That's true. With respect to the doctrinal question, I get very leery of using antitrust To achieve sort of what I would call free speech goals, because I think it puts in the hands of those uh, adjudicating the law or prosecuting cases under the law, fact patterns and legal theories that require what are political judgments and maybe even judgments about speech. Mm -hmm. Um, And that gets you into some pretty hot water. So I
1: I don't mean to raise a sore subject, but uh, maybe it's that. Uh, expressing that view that uh, led the Justice Department to think they should take over the review of all of the antitrust uh, issues in Silicon Valley uh, uh, maybe where their, their decision to to do a review of of all the people that they had previously said they would let the FTC review uh, reflects a decision that they're not quite ready to go there they, they might they might think that there are uh, speech and antitrust values that they can um, uh, bring to bear that uh, the FTC might be reluctant to bring to bear.
0: Well. We said at the beginning that I can't speak for the entire FDC. I certainly can't Die speak high. for the DOJ. <laughs> <That's> and <right. laughs> I look forward to your interview of Megan <laughs> I am
1: I am I am. looking forward to that myself. Uh, uh, Megan, you are free to come on anytime and tell me where I'm wrong or, frankly, where Noah's wrong. So let me ask you one more question unrelated to this, uh, uh, because I've also done a uh, an impassioned program on the likelihood that uh, the Schrems decision that is now pending in the uh, uh, European in court of Justice uh, will uh, produce a massive trade war and should, frankly, uh, a, a, and a real crisis between uh, the U.S. and Europe uh, uh, because of the notion that they need to review in order to determine whether data can come to the United States. Uh, uh, the U.S. must have privacy guarantees that are more or less identical to those uh, available in Europe, and that includes – their view of how we ought to run our intelligence programs for fighting terrorism Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we're not likely to grant that uh, anytime soon and that could mean a real uh, final crisis over exports of data because it's gone from being a negotiation between two executives to being a matter of law uh, in which the uh, European Court of Justice is hoping to have their Marbury versus Madison moment. I think it's more likely they're having their Dred Scott moment. They're saying, hey, leave it to us. We'll settle this thing with law Uh, and they've come up with a solution that everybody's going to hate and it's going to lead to something equivalent to war, but uh, we'll see. So. In the discussion of that, the, the first new idea I've seen coming out of Europe uh, is to say, hey, maybe what we can do is um, decide that now that California has passed the CCPA, which is so close to GDPR, you know, those good little colonials, they almost got it right. Uh, uh, Why don't we decide that California's law is adequate? Uh, And you're the point uh, in many ways on dealing with Europe on uh, uh, the uh, privacy shield. Uh, uh, Do you think that is a creative or hopeful solution to this problem, or is it just somebody kind of hoping to find a solution but not likely
0: to work? So I saw the reporting on the question from the European Parliament, and I don't know what its origin, whether it's looking for a solution or what have you. But what shocked me was that CCPA and all the laws of the state of California don't regard anything about U.S. national security, practice or law.
1: Well, and they're subject to the uh, First Amendment, for example, and there are going to be First Amendment challenges to multiple aspects of CCPA
0: is my guess. That may also be. Um, But if you think California is adequate, uh, I would think you've given up quite a bit by way of argument. We should should, should just say, yeah, that's a great
1: idea, guys. Uh, Let's do that. (laughs) We've given up the game, Stuart. (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, you know, my guess is that the subtext here is, yeah, Trump was rooting for Brexit? Well, we're going to be rooting for Calexit. Uh, This is our effort to separate California from the rest of the United States just the way that uh, orange man uh, uh, helped to separate
0: uh, Great Britain from uh, Europe. I will say this. If the Europeans sit in the way of getting adequacy for the UK, which has GDPR, that will be something altogether different. Uh, would
1: not surprise me at all because, you know, let, let's face it, uh, as administered, adequacy means far more pain for people outside of Europe than for people inside the, the European wall. I, I, I mean, I, I, no one really thinks that uh, privacy and civil liberties are as protected in Bulgaria as they are in the United Kingdom. Uh, uh, but Bulgaria is never going to have a problem, uh, and the United Kingdom is going to have uh, problems uh, 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 you know,
0: uh, for the next 20 years. The singular question that I've never gotten a good answer to is why doesn't European national security law count for purposes of this conversation? You can't possibly be in a position where you're willing to adjudge someone else inadequate without taking into account your own practices. That to me just does not hold water. So I, th- I think that the answer is they take them into account on paper.
1: But then the only time they actually look at the mechanisms for enforcement is when they're dealing with people outside of uh, Europe. Uh, There's no serious effort to uh, hold the Bulgarians to the procedural – to to a fair implementation of all these things, uh, to uh, look at – the corrupt mechanisms for exposure of personal data that may exist there. Uh, instead, uh, it's do you have your paperwork in order? And if you do, you're good to go inside Schengen. Uh, uh, and if you are from the outside, we that's just the beginning of the inquiry. That's my guess. Uh, uh, and it's convenient, right, because they could get in trouble making – problems for Bulgaria, they're not going to get in trouble get making problems for the U.S. and soon for the U.K. because they don't vote, they don't, they're don't, they not represented in the parliament, they're not on the commission. Uh, if they make problems for uh, British companies, maybe that's an opportunity for European companies. It all is self-reinforcement. So um, last question, I guess. Do you think you're going to win this
0: argument? Well, I think I've got the law on my side, so that's a good place in which to start. In terms of convergence, I do think that the case has not remotely been made. Um, So, yeah, I think I'm going to win. All right. Great.
1: Uh, That's a um, uh – Uh, an inspiring faith in uh, the rationality of man. Uh, Thanks to Noah Phillips uh, for joining me. This has been episode 303, a bonus episode of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, Be sure to vote. Now, you've gotten a chance to uh, listen to an interview that is entirely separate from the News Roundup. uh, uh, And then most of our uh, interviews are tied to the News Roundup. We're trying to decide whether we should do all of our uh, interviews separately and release them separately uh, uh, or continue to uh, mostly uh, connect them uh, uh, and you get to vote on that. Uh, if you go to steptocom slash podcast poll, all one word, uh, we're going to take uh, votes all the way through March. Uh, uh, if you got uh, other guests you think we should uh, have on the Uh, podcast. Send them to uh, your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you uh, suggest somebody and they come on the the program, uh, you'll get one of our coveted uh, uh, cyber law podcast Mugs uh, which uh, um, Noah already has one of I will give him a second as long as it does not go over the $20 a year uh, uh, limit on Uh, (laughs) uh, and please do rate the show uh, by leaving us a, a, a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcast please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology security privacy and government Thank you.